Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Mark Opler, and I'd like to welcome you to this conversation with Dr. Christoph Carell. Dr. Carell, before we begin, could you give us just a brief personal introduction? Tell us a little bit more about how you got into this field and what your research focus is on. Sure. First of all, thanks for having me. My name is Christoph Corell. I'm both an adult and child psychiatrist. I focus on psychopharmacology, both risks and benefits of psychotropic medications, and I'm a clinical psychiatrist and uh, clinical scientist. I actually started getting into psychiatry, A, because I have four psychoanalysts in my family, and I thought that must be important then to try to dissect the brain in a certain way, but I soon realized that just talking doesn't really do all the tricks, so I got into more biological psychiatry and psychopharmacology, but also during my medical school years, I worked on a locked unit and and did some nursing one-on-one stuff and saw that psychosis is just so fascinating. And I actually got into the field wanting to try to solve the riddle of schizophrenia and understand it and and potentially cure it. Um, I've obviously gotten wiser and now it's about understanding just pieces of it and maybe helping patients live with it better and having some therapeutics that can ease some of the suffering and improve some functionality. So the research focus is uh, basically on early recognition and prevention of psychosis, um, as well as uh, psychopharmacology and risks and benefits, comparative effectiveness of treatments. Thank you. Moving on, maybe you could tell us what you see as the top three challenges in our current clinical trials environment, especially around methodologies and trial conduct. Yeah, so unfortunately, we've seen um, quite a bit of programs uh, look promising and then fail and have real negative results, especially I think the transition from phase two to phase three has been particularly difficult, and we need to understand that better. Why do we get some signals in smaller trials that are suggestive, and then once you go into large explanatory or explanatory trials, phase three study programs, they then uh, yield very little results that can lead to approval. And one of the related big problems is the rising and enormous placebo effect that has um, really invaded and uh, undermined the signal-to-noise detection. And we've seen recently meta-analyzed that over the last 45 years in schizophrenia, the placebo effect has increased by 12.2 points and the drug effect by 1.2 points. So we really need to get under control what happens when you have more and more sites, that their placebo response increases, when you have more study arms, that there is more expectation bias and maybe also some baseline inflation. And we need to have methodology that can deal with that. So I think that that's a major challenge. Another challenge is that we see patients intermittently And based on their recall, even though it's an interview, based on their recall that they have now for the last week or even longer periods of time, we make judgments on how they actually behaved or what they felt and what they thought. So it's still very subjective. And I think 
as we talk maybe about some potential, we will have to use methodology that can give us a much finer grained assessment and also more objective data on behavior and performance of patients. And I think those are the, the main ones. A, a related one is the third one, cross-cultural psychiatry. I mean, we're now getting approvals in many cultures and psychiatry might be more culturally bound than we think. And how to get that under control? We have some cultures where the placebo effect is even larger, where you have only a couple of patients per site. Um, how, how do we deal with that is, I think, something that people haven't really tapped into either. Thank you. Could you share with us just a couple of examples of developments in clinical research from the past year that you are particularly excited about? And tell us about why you think they'll have an impact on the lives of patients. Well, I think the, the, the most exciting at the moment, because it is around the corner of hopefully getting approval, is around uh, harnessing the uh, glutamate system for depression. So rapid-acting antidepressants, especially as ketamine on the forefront, before it was ketamine IV, now it's uh, intranasal treatment. So that we've really learned that our hypothesis, it takes two or four or six weeks until depression improves, uh, is not necessarily right. If you have another receptor system and another approach, people after 40 minutes feel different and after a day or two have reached their maximum effect size after one single IV dose of ketamine. That, that's really exciting. Also that it's anti-suicidal and so that opens uh, different treatment paradigms that people who are currently held in an emergency room or sent uh, for admission could maybe um, be uh, spared the admission or people mm -hmm. who um, are um, waiting for a response and get into a sick role and don't get back into work that they can actually get speed jumped into uh, an improvement and um, faster recovery. Related to that is, is that we have basically now um, for the first time in 40 to 50 years an opening into a different receptor system than just the monoamines. So otherwise it's always really been in psychiatry around serotonin, noradrenaline, and dopamine. And as we look into particularly receptors where people have seen the effect sizes large, and these are receptors related to abuse, um, whether it's um, ketamine, uh, whether it's um, also uh, other um, areas of whether it's cannabinoids, um, seeing that patients can actually, we can harness this maybe to, to a benefit of a patient. So that, that's what I'm, um, I think, excited about. Um, the question is, what, what else is there? Um, in terms of developments, can we use more technology to either assess or also treat patients? Um, that, that's, I think, underappreciated at the moment because when you look at patients and people in general, they use technology all day and many, many hours. And getting information for clinical trials from, from either e-mental health tools that can be used as medical devices or maybe devices that measure 
also um, adherence and improve adherence. This is something where I'm also excited that this could yield additional benefits for patients. Thank you very much. Moving on, what do you see as the top three opportunities in clinical development for psychiatry? Where can we make a dent? Where can we make an impact still? So, I mean, one I mentioned, that's use of technology, uh, wearables in order to get more objective data, um, also interactive right. assessments, momentary assessments to see do patients actually hear voices all of the time um, or do they only say it when we, when we have them at baseline. During screening, this could actually refine also the patient population we want to enroll that has a certain uh, frequency and severity um, during the day mm -hmm. of certain symptoms. So I think that's, that's exciting. Um, another one is the field must move away from these broad stroke diagnostic approaches for, for molecules. We must do stratified medicine and stratified clinical trials. So when a medication has a target engagement, um, let's say within Senexlin where it was an alpha-7 uh, agonist in the, in the um, um, nicotinic system, you want mm -hmm. to see whether you can actually measure that system and only enroll patients who have a deficit there. Or when you use an anti-inflammatory drug, just measure people who have inflammation and enroll those. What the companies currently are still doing is they have a hypothesis, they take all patients and then their biomarker, so to speak, is then run afterwards when it's totally underpowered to see could they have yielded a result. So I think that's something where we really need to get into subgroups of patients. We might also need to reanalyze some data to see who are the super responders and learn from even failed and negative trials in order to see can we identify these potential subgroups where we uh, learn something for, for the future. And um, I think those are the, the two main things where I would see uh, progress can be made quickly. Um, other than that, obviously, we, we need novel mechanisms and we need also uh, treatments for current um, um, dimensions that are not captured in the current treatment algorithm be it negative and cognitive symptoms for people with schizophrenia, um, be it treatments for the elderly who are agitated and aggressive and uh, the treatments have right. no risk for increased mortality. I think these are lower hanging fruit than, for example, understanding and, and treating dementia. Thank you. And to, to finish up, could you share with us some of your predictions for what we can expect for 2019? So, for example, what do you think some of the surprises are going to be in the coming year? Um, how will the, the, the focus of our field shift? And are, are there particular programs uh, that are reading out, particular events that you're looking forward to in 2019? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think there will be uh, big paradigm shifts or huge surprises. One year is just too short of a time. Uh, otherwise, we would have seen uh, big movements or, or rumblings already. 
Um, but there's a steady flow of programs, some of them that will read out. Um, for example, we'll have um, more data on esketamine. Um, it will also be most likely presented to the FDA and we'll see whether there will be approval for it and for which indications. There will also be the readout uh, of lumateperon for different indications than uh, schizophrenia, for example, bipolar depression, and maybe also one of the elderly studies. Um, most likely, lumateperon will get FDA approval in 2019 as one of the safest antipsychotics. Um, it will be interesting how the MIN-101 story will fare, but that will take much longer. Um, than 2019, but maybe we'll get some readout on the pimavanserin uh, augmentation mm -hmm. study in uh, schizophrenia for negative symptoms and for also uh, treatment for depression. So what about the story of 5-HT2A inverse agonism? That will be interesting. We'll get a readout on AUX3831, whether adding um, samidorphan to olanzapine will really in the long-term study reduce weight dramatically and to what degree and whether it's just a weight reduction or also cardiometabolic um, effects that are relevant for patients. So I think those, those are things that we expect to learn about in the next year that might actually lead to approval of new agents. And it, it's, it's good stuff because we haven't had, except for last year, um, some data that led to treatment first for the first treatment for tardive dyskinesia, uh, the VMAT2 inhibitors as a new class, the novel ones. Um, we haven't seen many approvals of novel mechanism agents in CNS. And so seeing also studies that um, programs that work out, I think has reinvigorated the field. And that's important because we've had a period where many uh, large CNS companies um, pharmaceutical companies actually drew out of the brain and it's good to see that there's more room now for further de development. Well, thank you very much. Uh, we've been speaking with Dr. Christoph Carell. Dr. Carell, thank you again for sharing your insights and your predictions with us. <laughs>